So um, when we were invited to come back to Kenya to volunteer again, my husband at the hospital in Kajabi, um, I was in contact with the Bible College there. We had gotten to know people there before, and um, I contacted them and said, would you like me to teach a course while I'm there? Um, and it will only be a sort of half-semester course, the second half of the semester. And I gave them several options. And they chose this one, which was not my first choice because I knew I'd have to do a lot of work for this one again because um, it was some years since I had given a sort of six, uh, series of six talks on it um, at our other church um, years ago. And, uh, but I had first become interested in it just through teaching it in um, the high school setting of our homeschool cooperative and just began researching. Uh, it was just a topic of, of real interest for me, partly because we know various people who have come out of um, Islam and um, you know, personal friends and, and people actually are, are friends and renters in our basement right now um, are from Uzbekistan and are um, ex-Muslim. So um, anyway, I thought well, that probably the reason that they asked me to do this is because it's a hot topic and in Kenya we receive regularly um, postings from a friend of ours on Facebook of, you know, the, the latest um, uh, murder. Sorry, do you want me to louder. talk louder? Okay, the latest um, uh, murders that have happened of, of Christians, and uh, uh, especially in the northern, the northeastern area. And so, you know, I thought, well, they probably figure, well, you're coming in and you're going out again. And, and um, But, you know, I will have to ask that they not post any pictures of me, you know, beside critical, you know, things that are critical of the prophet um, while I'm there. And so I would just really appreciate your prayers for our family safety while we're there. So um, <clears throat> we all, I think, recognize that we're in a, a global war. And we know that the history of the world is the history of the conflict between good and evil, between the kingdom, power, and people of heaven, and the kingdoms, powers, and peoples of this fallen world. And any war boasts a number of different theaters and fronts. And to borrow from World War II terminology, the allied powers of God's people, the church must fight on many fronts with the various axis powers of God's enemy, of human satanic systems of belief and behavior in their many forms. Um, <coughs> we know that we have victory in Christ um, already, but of course we are still in the battle, and this involves you know, every area of life, ideological, theological, religious, moral, ethical, cultural, political, legal, etc. Um, and we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and the spiritual forces of, of evil in the heavenly places. And this is true in, in everything that sets itself up against the truth of um, Christ. So what would you say have been the greatest opposing forces and conflicts faced by God's people in the past century, um, or in the past millennium and beyond? In other words, what have been the most significant faces of the enemy? What are the human systems, philosophies, ideologies, um, and behaviors that set themselves up in rebellion against the kingdom of God? Well, oops. Um, the answer to that question is um, uh, there are a lot of things that we could list, right? Um, some of them are, you know, directly have to do with sin. Um, some of them are more world things like political movements, um, various ideologies, um, even ignorance of the gospel, um, and the various human religions, and 
including Islamism, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, but even in the church, um, and this is something we cannot separate from it, is the problems in the church of nominalism, apathy, hypocrisy, bad theology, um, liberalism, syncretism. So I, uh, just you know, I'm going to be trying to skip through three lectures in the next 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> and then we're going to try and get to um, uh, talking about the life of Muhammad and, and go on with the history from there. So, uh, again, sin is universal and ubiquitous. It taints and corrupts every individual, every culture, um, every ethnicity, race, nation, religion, and belief system. There are, we all know that there are relatively nice, good you know, people everywhere, and yet all are sinners and fallen, fall short of God's standard. Um, each one of us is, to a greater or lesser degree, unloving, uh, idolatrous, selfish, proud, unkind, etc. But apart from the knowledge of Christ, people are that much more given to selfishness and godliness and idolatry. And there are always at least a few in any society who are inhumane, brutal, bestial, murderous, and monstrous. The question is, what is it in the ideology of that society that either um, holds back that um, evil or enables that evil to grow and thrive? Um, so, what do we know about Islam? Um, maybe by a show of hands, can you tell me how many of you personally know a Muslim? Someone who is currently a Muslim. Okay, that's a lot, actually. That's great. Um, how many know a convert to Islam? The guy Two. in our church, Muhammad, that guy, he spent yeah. 10 years ago. Okay, so, uh, or from Islam, okay, or from Islam. So many of us, I think, know someone who was a uh, Muslim, but who is no longer a Muslim, yeah. I think. Um, the question is, how well do we actually know Islam itself? Um, most of us don't really, haven't really read the Quran. I admit I've still not read all the way through, but I, in my research, I've spent time reading through the surahs, and um, becoming more and more familiar with those and with at least um, finding those verses which are pertinent to the study that we're going to have today. Um, it's true, of course, on the other side that most Muslims don't really know what, Muslim, what Christians believe, what the gospel is, what uh, is in our scriptures, um, the large majority of them. But it's been said that we need to know our enemy and um, that we should keep our friends close and our enemies closer. So if Jesus has called us to love our enemies, we must know them in order to love them, um, in order to pray for them, in order to share the good news with them. And of course, we too were once God's enemies, and he reconciled us um, by Jesus' death on the cross. There are those who very misguidedly um, believe or consider Islam a compatible sister religion to Christianity and Judaism simply because they are monotheistic. Some actually go so far as to claim that all three worship the same God, but I'm sure you all understand by now that there's a vast difference between the solitary, unitarian monotheism of Islam and the triune monotheism of Christianity. Um, and the question, you know, the first question to ask yourself is how, or well, that I guess in a sense, or um, something you could bring up with someone who is a Muslim is, how is it possible that the eternal attribute of love is possible for a God who has lived uh, from eternity in isolation, right? And, and that's the difference between uh, the two forms of monotheism. These produce very different ways of seeing the world, very different cultures, very different societies, 
in very different legal and political systems. There are plenty of Muslims who are seemingly, seemingly innocuous and even good and peace-loving on an individual human level. However, the writings of Islam are nothing like the inspired word of God. The Quran and Hadith convey certain moral ethical teachings, but they do not reveal our almighty triune creator God's sublime character and person and holy standards, or his loving, gracious plan of salvation. Um, mere human moralism leads to self-righteousness and legalism, as we will see. The Muslim scriptures present Jesus as a great prophet, but one who is entirely human, though in reality most Muslims rarely would even acknowledge the existence of Christ. Their scriptures do, um, and see him as an, a, a prophet who was superseded along with the rest of the um, previous revelations from God by the revelations that came through Muhammad. Um, what we will see is that there are certain statements in the um, surahs of the Quran that are consistent in, in a certain sense with um, scriptures. So if you look at this surah, kind speech and forgiveness are better than charity followed by insight. And Allah is free of need and forbearing. Well, okay, kind speech and forgiveness, you know, are better than, you know, if you're nice and then you beat someone up, right? can't argue with that, and God is free of need, he doesn't need anything, and he is forbearing, right? So there are lots of statements that we could say, well, that, that seems pretty consistent with Christian principles. Um, however, oops, oh, sorry, the second um, quotation here is um, directed at Christians and Jews, um, who at the time when these were uh, delivered to the people, and as we'll look at the, in the history in a moment, um, did not accept them. And so it says, when it is said to them, people like us, believe in what Allah has revealed, they say, we believe in what was revealed to us in, already in the scriptures, and they disbelieve in what came after it. While it is the truth confirming, the surahs, by the way, just means the revelations, the, the, the various revelations that came to form the Quran. While it is the truth confirming that which is with them already, um, so the idea is that this is just confirming what they have, and yet, ultimately, what they have was corrupted, and, and it's not the original, and sorry, we don't have the original, it's disappeared. So, um, And then, so say to them, why did you kill the prophets of Allah, Old Testament prophets and even Jesus, if you were indeed believers? Right? So this is the challenge to Christians from um, Surah 2. Um, so the Islamic faith began as a fairly simple set of dogmas formulated and propagated by an illiterate Arab man born in relative obscurity around 570 AD. It's a patchwork of scraps drawn from the old Arabian paganism, together with elements of Hebraism, Christianity, Gnosticism, and other influences, <clears throat> woven together with some entirely novel threads into a distinct fabric that is somewhat erratic in pattern, um, Muhammad and his followers claim that the Quran, however, is the eternal word of God, the final book of revelation to humans from the one true God that completes our knowledge and that is superior in authority to any other. Where it stands, as I say, in contradiction to the Old and New Testaments, it's because the extent of the existing Hebrew and Christian scriptures were altered, the originals being lost forever, which means it's really hard to confirm that. Um, So Gabriel, uh, so this is again from Surah 2, Gabriel is he, Gabriel is the angel who delivered these um, messages to Muhammad on Mount Hira. 
Gabriel is he who has brought the Quran down upon your heart, O Muhammad, by permission of Allah, confirming that which was before it, and as guidance and good tidings. That means gospel for the believers. So, Paul confronts, uh, I'm going to skip through this, but Paul confronts the believers in, um, Gal in Galatia for the fact that they are accepting new teachings that are contrary to the word of God that they'd already been given, the gospel that they'd received. And he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. Perhaps Muhammad conceived of the surahs um, himself from his own human psyche and or with the assistance and input of others, uh, whether during his own life or later, um, whether there was redaction of the text um, at some point, uh, which again is a really complex question, but we'll come to that later. Perhaps he did receive the teachings of the Quran through some angelic being, for all I know. Joseph Smith, uh, the founder of the Mormon uh, belief system, you know, claimed the same sort of thing. There is one, more than one category of angels, as we know. Either way, it is a new and different gospel, and one contrary to the true gospel that Paul had preached. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about Muslim population. There are about 1.9 billion adherents uh, in the world, which is 24.4% of the world's population. They constitute the world's second largest religious group after Christians. Um, <clears throat> and the... Well, we'll talk about growth in a minute. Okay, so... Only about 20% of Muslims live in the 22 countries of the Middle East and North Africa region where things originated in the first 100 years. Um, two of those, of course, are non-Arab nations. Um, so here's, here's the distribution here. Um, you can see where the darkest part is where um, Islam is almost completely uh, the, the only religion of the area. Um, and then you can see... Um, uh, yeah... Again, I'll just, I won't go into too many details. So, um, so this actually only about 8 to 9% of the world's Muslims at this point in the Arabic nations. Um, the, re the other over 90% is in the rest of the world. Um, interestingly, 12.7% of Muslims live in the single country of Indonesia. 11% of them live in Pakistan, 11% in India, 9% in Bangladesh. And then you can see Nigeria and Egypt. Um, and Iran and Turkey are all somewhere around the 5%, and it kind of goes from there. Um, this is just another distribution of it showing the sizes of the country size here represented, um, shows you the size of the population uh, in terms of the percent. Holy. So, um, so that here, you, there are almost 49 Muslim-majority nations, and so there's a list here, um, you'll see, you know, 87.2% in Indonesia are Muslim, in Pakistan it's 96.5%, uh, in India it's only 15%, but of course, um, they're all in certain areas like um, Jammu and Kashmir, Uttar Pradesh and Andhra Pradesh, Bihar and West Bengal, and then Lakshadweep Islands down here are 96% as well. But most of them are, you know, up along the borders with Pakistan and um, Bangladesh, right? Um, the large part of the Muslim population. And because it's distributed among so many, you know, 1.4 billion people, um, it comes out as 15%. But in this area up here, you're talking 50 to 100. 
100%, depending on the region you're in. Um, so we'll read that. And, and just, you know, we'll read in Genesis 17, As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I will bless him and make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac. And ultimately, that covenant is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we see also that Esau intermarried with Ishmael. Um, so Islam, as we've mentioned, is the fastest growing religion. Um, why? Because of higher birth rates, migration, proselytism, military jihad, and forced or pressured conversion. Um, Again, 12.3% of the world's population was Muslim in 1900, and it is now 12, 24.4% in, or it was in 2019. So we went from, in 1900, one in eight people in the world was Muslim, and it is now one in four, so that's doubled. And those, the numbers are increasing. Here you can see um, just, the, again, the distribution of things from 20%. Uh, in 1990 of the population to 26.6% here. Uh, yeah, and so, but I don't have the 1900 in this one. 1900, as you know, is much lower. So, um, according to Pew Research Statistics, by 2050, the Muslim population in Europe is projected to rise as follows. Now, there are three um, uh, projections. One is low, which is if all migration influxes stopped right now, if they didn't let one more... Um, um, believer in Islam in, this is what would happen just because of uh, the fact that the Muslim population is much younger while the, um, the uh, European population is tending to age out um, and because of the fact that they have much higher birth rates and in uh, Europe they're even lower than here and in some cases literally their population is, is disappearing. Um, so mid is if all refugee influx was to be stopped, but regular in immigration were to continue, and high is if everything just goes on as it is. So I can't go through these with you, but the, you can see um, this is the, um, what things would look like in the high uh, scenario. Um, but we're going to go to some numbers that are easy to read. So in Europe, in 1900, 2.3% um, of the population was Muslim. By 2000, 4.3. 2016, 4.6. By 2050, the high projection is 14% of the population. Sweden, 30.6%. So almost one in three people would be Muslim. France, 18. United Kingdom, 17. Belgium, 18. Norway, 17. Um, Germany, almost 20. Uh, Austria, 20. Um, at the same time, the Christian population uh, is experiencing attrition. So it dropped from 34.5% in 1900 to 33% in 2000. Um, so it's not huge, but of course, at the same time, um, s the numbers of nominalist or of... Um, Theolo you know, um, theistic evolutionists or of multiculturalist syncretists has risen so greatly that really these numbers don't have the same meaning as they once did, right? Um, so I'm just going to skip through that section because there's just too much. So, and I think you're pretty aware of that, so. Uh, yeah, and those are older statistics in Canada. In, in Kenya, where we're going, it's only 11%, but again, it's, it's very concentrated along in the Northeast. 
um, and there's a significant population in Kenya, or sorry, in um, Nairobi. So it tends to be, you know, you've heard of um, Garissa in the news, right? That was where the, um, the uh, Christian Bible College, um, that's what I want, slayings happened. So, um, okay, so we'll briefly mention the threats of Islam. Is anyone familiar with George Grant? So these are some of his qualifications here. Um, where am I? Okay. So I won't go through those, but um, George Grant says, the greatest conflict of the 20th century and the last millennium has undoubtedly been between Islam and civilization, freedom, progress, and hope for the future. This is Gert Wilders, I can't say his name probably, Gilt, Gilt, or something like that. He's a Dutch politician. He travels with an entourage of, of bodyguard because he has spoken out in Europe and he comes and speaks in North America as well about the concerns with the influx of Islam into Europe. And, um, and so he, you know, has to sleep. <laughs> he has to move from place to place with a bodyguard. Um, and yet he continues to speak out boldly and say, you know, our, our immigration policies are, are suicidal. Um, and we're losing our, our society. Um, so anyway, I, I have this slide in here because he's kind of an interesting looking character and I thought the students would enjoy it. Um, he says, today I come before you to warn of a great threat. It's called Islam. It poses as a religion, but its goals are very worldly. World domination, holy war, Sharia law, the end of separation of church and state, slavery of women, the end of democracy. It's not a religion, it's a political ideology. Now, I disagree with him, it's both, right? But um, he's looking at it from that perspective, and I think trying to distance himself from the, the um, perception of being uh, discriminatory or um, racist or anything else like that. But the reality is, it is both. Um, Winston Churchill said, when Muslims are in the minority, they're very concerned with minority rights. When they're in the majority, there are no minority rights. Um, he also said, he also commented on the dreadful curse of Mohammedanism in his 1899 book, The River Wars. Individual Muslims may show splendid qualities, but the influence of the religion paralyzes the social development of those who follow it. No stronger retrograde force exists in the world. So, again, I'm not going to go through the details of what Islamic states look like and the threat they can pose to the countries around them and um, to world's stability. Um, there's a lot of politics that one could discuss in, in that regard, but of course also in the treatment of their own people, um, <coughs> many of whom are trying to get away from it, interestingly. So, um, yeah, we're just going to, we're just going to keep moving. So, um, you know, five uh, phases of the spread of Islam include incubation, recognition, infiltration, confrontation, and imposition um, is how one person has described it. Um, and the reality is that in Europe, um, they're in, you know, anywhere from stage, you know, all the way to stage five at this point. So, um, uh, you know, again, we tend to be behind Europe in fashion and in everything else. And, um, you know, but we're usually about ten steps behind or ten years behind. But... So here are just a couple of excerpts from uh, the Quran here. Indeed, those who have believed and those who have emigrated and fought in the cause of Allah, those may expect the mercy of Allah. And an injunction or um, uh, uh, 
imperative here and fight in the cause of Allah and know that Allah is hearing and knowing. And there's many others we can look at. But, um, so one of the biggest concerns, of course, is immigration without assimilation, um, that they tend, um, as most immigrants, tend to congregate in certain areas and have homogenous communities, and so to um, propagate the, their cultural beliefs and, and ways of doing things, including, ultimately, Sharia law, um, which is an extremely broad legal system that regulates not just public <coughs> behavior, but also private behavior and beliefs. It prioritizes punishment over rehabilitation and favors corporal and capital punishment over incarceration. So here are just some um, examples of, of uh, the um, thing, <laughs> the, there's um, a nice bells. Um, I'm easily distracted, right? <laughs> so um, you've got theft is punishable by amputation. Um, and then all this list of things that are punishable by death, including um, any criticism of the Quran, um, Muhammad or Allah, apostasy by turn, you know, uh, conversion, um, or um, sharing the gospel with someone, uh, evangelism, uh, a woman found guilty of adultery, a non-Muslim man marrying a, woman, a Muslim woman, and homosexuality, of course. Here's the, here's the rub. A raped girl cannot testify in court against her rapist. She needs the testimony of four male witnesses to prove rape of a female. So hang on, so you're telling me four men stood by and watched her get raped and then they're gonna testify in court for, on her behalf? How does this work? Um, a, however, a woman who alleges rape without producing four male witnesses is guilty of adultery. So if you say, I was raped, well, you must have consented or put yourself in that situation. You are actually yourself guilty of adultery, and we know what the penalty for that is. And a man who's convicted of rape can have his conviction dismissed by simply marrying his victim. So if you know some girl catches his eye and he can catch her alone, um, this is a great way to find your wife. I'm not saying this happens in every case. I'm saying that it is legally sanctioned, that it is in the Sharia law. Muslim men have sexual rights to any woman not wearing a hijab in conservative Christian or conservative Muslim um, contexts or uh, communities. Uh, mostly, this would be, you know, uh, something that would um, someone might get away with in uh, the Arab Islamic states. A woman can have one husband; a man can have up to four. Although uh, four wives, uh, Muhammad had ten. Uh, he kind of. I guess God granted him an exception. A uh, man can marry an infant girl even and consummate when she is nine years old. Uh, then there's female genital mutilation. Um, a man can beat his wife for insubordination. He can unilaterally divorce his wife. Um, she loses custody to all children, six plus or when they reach that age, if they're taken away. Um, a woman's testimony in court um, carries half the weight of a man's. She inherits half of what a male inherits. She can't speak alone to a man who isn't her husband or relative. And Muslims are um, free to engage in taqiyah, lying to non-Muslims in order to advance Islam. So there um, are countries in which Sharia law already is um, pretty much the law of the land. Um, it, it forms the basis of it, and others where it's um, present regionally or unofficially um, practiced in certain communities in their own um, separate courts, uh, privately, quietly, under the radar. So in the reality is Muhammad's views on women were actually quite liberal and progressive for his societal context. We have to give him that. 
Um, and if you look, you know, if you read some of the source, you'll see that, you know, he actually was elevating the status of women and actually giving them more safeguards in society. Um, and he was also promoting modesty and um, trying to guard against um, uh, the sexual promiscuity that was going on. Um, but of course, one way of dealing that with that that would continue to be legitimate was just marry, you know, well, at least up to four women. At any rate, in his case, it was ten. Today, the more devout, radical, or radical in Islamic family community is, the more repressive and oppressive life is to the women in their midst. Um, and we're just going to skip by the rest of that. Then there's hijab coverings. Again, I don't really, I need to get into the body of things. So, you know, here are the images. We sometimes see that, you know, okay, uh, she looks happy enough, and we've got, you know, something very um, haute uh, couture and, you know, happy people in just a headscarf. Um, but the reality is much of the face of Islam looks more like um, the hijab and the niqab and the burqa. Or sorry, not the hijab, the niqab and the burqa, I don't know. Um, and we can't really cover that. So, to evaluate whether a religion engenders love and peace, we have to look beyond its adherents, who may be false and are certainly faulty and imperfect, whether they're Muslim or Christian, to the founders and teachers, Jesus, the Bible, versus Muhammad, the Quran, and the Hadith. And this is a particularly ironic um, slide. <laughs> image. Um, so again, just Jesus, of course, as we know, um, issued the attempts to um, get him to reveal himself in his full glory and, and um, proclaim himself king either in a human way or in a uh, divine way. And he, um, obviously he could have called 10,000 angels, but um, instead he healed the one who was, um, who his disciple uh, cut with the sword. So. Um, so here's another quote by Geert Wilders. It's difficult to be an optimist in the face of the growing Islamization of Europe. All the tides are against us. On all fronts, we're losing. Democrat demographically, the momentum is with Islam. Muslim immigration is a source of pride within the ruling liberal parties. Um, the entire establishment is sided with the enemy. Leftists, liberals, and Christian Democrats are all in bed with Islam. He also says there might be moderate Muslims, but there's no moderate Islam. So let's... Um, get into the body of our historical um, research here. So, descendants of Islam. I don't really think about how I was going to hold this. Um, <clears throat> it might be easier if I just do this. Ancient pre-Islam, Arabia was ruled by a mixture of Babylonians, Persians, Romans, and Jews. The peninsula of Arabia has always been a center of trade, sitting between three continents, Africa, Europe, and Asia. It's surrounded by water, but consists of more than one-third scorching desert. And the word Arab means arid or dry. Islam was born into the context of the Arab peoples of the region. They're descendants of uh, Ishmael, the, uh, nearly five, six of whom were Bedouins. So here's... Um, I could not find um, very clear uh, maps to put here of ancient um, Arabia. This one is supposedly around 500 AD with the Tubba Kingdom, uh, the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire here. And you can see here, oh, I can't really 
This is Mecca, but it, and it's also sorry in French. This is the best one I could find. Yeah. It was in French, but um, so and then uh, yeah. So anyway, that'll be Mecca, and we'll leave it at that. Um, so you can see the Arabian Desert um, covers a large portion of that. So um, and here we have this one's a little bit better. So here you have both Mecca and Yathrib, which became Medina, right there, and trade routes. So, the story of Islam begins uh, in Mecca, a well-established trade center near the shores of the Red Sea, an eclectic mix of residents, traders, and visitors. So there was a lot of um, nomadic peoples who, and, and traders and merchant caravans that were moving through all the time. The city was at the center of Arabian <coughs> pagan culture, which revolved around an important temple consisting of a giant obelisk called the Kaaba. It contained shrines of the many gods, hundreds of gods of the Arabian desert, including the jinn, who were sort of ghosts or spirits, some would say devils, one of whom was named Allah, by the way. Worshippers would march around the Kaaba in crowded circles. Where's my... Oh, I'm not there yet. Okay, well, we'll come to that. In crowded circles, chanting and praying, much as they do today. They believed that Abraham and Ishmael had established the Kaaba as a site for true worship of the one true God, but that there had been a gradual religious decline and descent into um, idolatry. And now what um, Muhammad did was to call them back to the monotheism of their ancestors, uh, Abraham and Ishmael, who was the true son the actual line of promise in, in their view. Um, so Muslims refer to the time before the spread of Islam as the age of ignorance, or al-Jahiliyah. With so many hours spent around the campfires, Bedouins became master storytellers. Um, they produced beautiful <coughs> works of poetry. Um, the greatest Arabic poems were inscribed on Egyptian silk and golden letters and hung on the walls of the Kaaba. Seven of these still remain intact. Um, at the same time, Bedouin girls were married as young as eight or nine. That was just uh, a common thing. It didn't mean all of them were, but, but certainly by 15 or 16. They were valued for their beauty, their ability to labor, and for their ability to provide warrior sons to their husbands. Still, baby girls were sometimes buried alive and left to die um, if, they seemed, if they were deemed superfluous. This age of, and, and this was one of the things that um, Muhammad wanted to correct. Um, this period of Jahaliyyah, ignorance, idolatry, and immorality, continued to the days of Muhammad, who, having, having overcome opposition and taken control of the Mecca, as we will see, purged the Kaaba of its idols and reestablished the monotheistic worship, um, as he saw it. Um, so, we'll, so here's just an image of um, uh, an artistic a representation of Abraham sending out um, Hagar and Ishmael. Um, Okay, so among Re Mecca's residents were the Quraysh tribe. Um, and there are two ways of spelling everything. It can be with the Q-U or the K-O. And I, in my presentation, I'm going with the Q-U kind of look, you'll see. But so you've got, so Quraysh could be spelled Q-U-A-I-R-E-A-S-H or the K-O-R-I-E-S-H. So I'm just letting you know that mostly I went with the Q, but here I actually use the K, so... 
um, if you just sort of wonder by about stones. Um, so it, this was a caravanning, trading, merchant family that controlled one of the great oases along the trade route in the heart of the Arabian Hejaz. So he came from a somewhat prominent family, um, but he was orphaned by age six, um, and at age eight he was taken in by an influential uncle, Abu Talib, um, and also cared for by his grandfather. He spent his early years as a shepherd, um, and like any other young person of the time, probably instead of TV, you sat around and listened to the stories of the, um, the uh, various storytellers around the campfire that night. Um, as part of the area's ruling family, he had certain freedoms, including access to resources and opportunities to travel with the car caravans into the region of Syria. Otherwise, his childhood was pretty unremarkable. And here are just some images that are, of course, from um, the last century of Bedouin tribes and uh, some artist renderings just to give us an idea of what life looked like and, and continued to look like for thousands of years. So he was exposed to um, you know, many different influences from the Nestorian East, the Byzantine realm, and perhaps even the Roman Imperium. He also became with, familiar with the stories and teachings of the Arabs, Zoroastrians, Jews, Christians of varying sects, including Gnostics and, um, and others who passed through the region. Obviously, some of the accounts that he heard would have reflected the storyteller's own in innovativeness or limited knowledge or partial ignorance. Doubtless, some of what he heard was accurate, while other, some was distorted, embellished, or fictive. Although he was bright, like most listeners, he wasn't always able to tell the difference, I'm sure, between fact and fiction. Some of what he learned was perhaps misunderstanding and misperception, because when you read through the um, uh, surahs, you go, well, okay, where did he get that? Um, and that's one of the big questions. Again, we'll, we'll come back to that. But um, because there are various references, for example, to biblical stories or, or, or characters, but they're just kind of they just kind of hang there. So it, it's just sort of a, a quick reference to some situation, some character or situation that is quasi biblical. Um, but again, the the original texts, which are not what we have, are gone. So you can't go back and and confirm anything. But um, so of course, also what he heard was shaped in his own mind by his own personal biases and his limits of memory. Uh, as he matured, uh, he, according to Muslim tradition, again, much of what we, we know about him, and you'll hear this and you'll hear that, because it depends on what source you read, because within Islam there are many hadith, many um, uh, writings that are about his life and about what he said and what he did, and the sunnah as well, um, that might disagree or um, give different kinds of details and um, depending on which um, faction you're in or which sect, um, whether Sunni or Shia or one of the others, um, you may accept certain details and not other details. Um, and yeah, we'll come back to that as well. All right, so by age 20, uh, he had wed a well-to-do Khadija, about 15 years a senior. They had four children together, including an adopted son. Gradually, he gained, as I say, a place as a leader in his tribe and clan. Um, but otherwise, he led a pretty normal life for an Arab merchant of the 6th century, but he was troubled, it would seem, by the polytheistic worship in his culture. So as the story goes, um, he enjoyed wandering around the mountains outside Mecca, seeking wisdom and truth, so he was something of a um, philosopher or, or um, uh, what's the word I want? 
um, not mystic. Mystic, thank you. That's the word. Thank you very much, <laughs> mystic. In his 30s, he began to retire for times of contemplation and meditation in a cave on Mount Hira. And when he was about 40 years old, so he was, you know, born probably around 570s, is about 610, is what it's believed. At the end of the month of Ramadan, he experienced this supernatural visitation, which was a disembodied voice. He didn't see an angel. He definitely didn't claim to have seen God. He, he at first, he didn't know what it was. He thought it was maybe a desert gym. Maybe he was going crazy. Maybe you know, he maybe just spent too much time in the hot sun. Um, and so, again, according to some accounts, his wife convinced him ultimately, based on what he, he shared with her, no, 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 I think you're hearing from, from God or from a God. And so um, it, it would seem that he initially wasn't sure what he was hearing, but at any rate, ultimately, he decided it was um, the angel Gabriel or G Gabriel bringing him messages from God. Um, so... So this is Mount Hira here, and there's a cave up there still. Um, this is just, uh, again, uh, an old ancient rendering of um, Jibril giving the message to Muhammad. Um, so, whence Allah? According to Muhammad, Allah was the eternal but forgotten name of God, now revealed to him in Gabriel's revelations. One source suggests, however, that Allah was in fact originally the name of an Arabian desert jinn, while another source asserts that Allah Ta'ala was the name of one of the gods worshipped at the Kaaba, until then thought to be ruler of the universe, seems, you know, a fairly significant god, but hadn't been, he'd been somewhat deistic and not very interested in man. Um, a third source suggests that Allah means the god or god referring to the moon god, um, one of the ancient pagan, or sorry, one of the, where am I? Yeah. One of the, the gods of ancient pagan Arabia. And the latter would seem more likely because, um, uh, of course, Muslims reject these claims, but the Muslim month of Ramadan begins at the sighting of the new crescent moon. Um, the image or symbol perched atop every mosque is the um, crescent moon. Um, the Kaaba houses a meteorite, and is a stone that in, 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 the ancient peoples believed came from heaven, perhaps from the moon. Right? Um, Muslims bow towards this. Um, the, the, the stone is still there, in, in housed in the. Let me see. No, we're still not there to the image, but of what the Kaaba looks like today. But maybe you know, um, it is still there. Um, and they still continue, obviously, to pray and um, walk and pil <coughs> make pilgrimage there and to walk around and worship at the Kaaba. Okay, so let's talk about the surahs. Um, a series of surahs, oh, revelations, dreams, visions, um, uh, holy utterances, came, 114 in all, over a period of more than 20 years, about 22, 23 years, between 610 and 632. As the story goes, the revelation delivered to him, he learned to recite, um, so the angel would say it, and he would recite it back until he could say it perfectly, and then he was able to then recite that to his initial followers, and then everyone memorized it and passed it along as oral tradition, which wasn't uncommon in the day to be able to, to memorize and, and recite um, in a way that we can't even really relate to at this point in our culture. Um, so 
the word, but the, again, there's a lot of discussion over how it all really happened, when it was written down. Uh, was it during his time that um, parts of it at least were written down? Certainly it was not collected until after his death. And well, if we have time, we'll get to that later. So the word Islam actually means to make a recitation. Classical belief or legend is that the eternal word, the Quran, in its entirety, entirety was actually sent down from heaven in one night, uh, Laylat al-Qadr, the night of power, but that Muhammad received it piecemeal in a series of surahs over 20 years. So it was sort of sent down from heaven, and then the angel was sent there to sort of give it to him in pieces over the period of 22 years for whatever reason, and sometimes there were long periods of silence, and then suddenly he'd get some more surahs. Um, so Muhammad uh, supposedly memorized all of these very miraculously um, because it is about ultimately about two-thirds of the length of the, of the New Testament. Now there are people who have memorized the whole New Testament, so that is possible, but however they are memorizing these with a written text to look at and memorize. Um, this was supposedly delivered to him. Um, and the complicated thing is that um, while he supposedly had followers who memorized everything completely, um, there's a uh, tradition is that when uh, uh, many of them were killed in battle later, who had memorized it completely, they were worried and thought, we've, we've got we've to collect the various fragments that have been written down and, you know, uh, codify these into a, a, a canon, a body of, of um, the surahs, right? And this happened after he was, had died, but it would seem that if there were also still people, many others, not just the warriors who, who were alive, who had it memorized in its entirety, it, it, the story just doesn't quite add up. But there's a lot of details like that that, again, we can't go into. So, um, supposedly, however, according to um, tradition, this word was enshrined in heaven for eternity past, but was just now being imparted to humankind, starting with Muhammad. The other issue is that when you read them, they're very earthy, very temporal, very situational, contextual. And you think, so, so God went, okay, so this is what you know needs to be said to these Jews who won't believe over here. And that was sort of in heaven from eternity, and yet it seems very much more like someone who's responding to things that are going on around him, right? You know, whether cultural issues or, or historical um, situations, um, right? And so it really doesn't come across as something that would make sense in that sense. Some of it is very poetic and very, you know, a little, um, there's, I'm not saying there's no beauty in some of it, but it, it really, if you read it, it does not hold a candle to the Word of God. I mean, it doesn't, it's not something that, I, it's hard for me to relate to and understand why people go, oh, this is so wonderful, because when I read it, I think, but, you know, the beauty of God's word is, is so incredible compared to this, but, because it, it's very much, um, yeah, anyway. Okay, so, um, Muhammad was, um, admittedly, by, uh, th their belief was that he was illiterate and a simple man, but this was regarded as having made him a pure vehicle through which the message could be transmitted, right? So that he was just a simple man, just taking God's word and passing it on, and, um, and yet he became much more than this in the years ahead. 
So his first few followers, um, as he shared these revelations with family and friends, there were a number who believed him and who accepted this as the word of God, including his wife, Khadija, um, his son Ali, his cousin Ali, and his servant <coughs> Zaid, um, or Z-A-Y-D, sometimes spelled that way. His friend and father-in-law, Abu Bakr, convinced five other men to convert to the new teachings, and they became known as Muhammad's six companions. Um, sadly, neither Muhammad nor his followers heeded the words of John's epistle. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Um, so what was the message? Again, we're going to focus on this next week, so I'm not going to spend much time on this, um, but it was one of pure monotheism. So Tawid is the word they use to refer to Allah's oneness and unity. Um, and in some ways, it sounds like the hero Israel, the Lord thy God, is one God, right? Um, there's, again, you can see this connection. Um, the ideas that Muhammad um, conveyed to his followers, because I'm going to you know, take the assumption that they came from him, um, whether you know, whatever other influences were involved, um, <coughs> excuse me, definitely show influence of um, Christian and Hebrew teachings, um, as well as other things, and pagan teachings, etc., all mixed together. Um, and so they're very eclectic, very kind of, um, uh, but then ultimately becoming their own unique um, idea of, or ideology. Um, so there's a sense of future judgment when all will answer to Allah for their actions. There's an idea of resurrection of the dead with joys of paradise for those. Again, we go, well, we can kind of relate to this in, in Christian theology. Eternal punishment for those with light scales. But ultimately, of course, this is a, a uh, teaching of works righteousness. So, um, And again, we see both um, salvation by faith, but also that we will be judged by our works in the Christian scriptures. Mm. But... But it's flipped on its head here. Yes, you have to have faith in Allah. Yes, you have to worship him. But ultimately, how are you saved or not saved? Allah goes, yeah, you're in. I think your good deeds are enough. Versus there's no sense of redemption. There's no one paying the penalty for your sins. You just got to make sure that you've given enough alms and done other good things that will um, tip the balances in your favor. Um, things like prayer and fasting and almsgiving, um, as well as various keeping various laws and, and uh, festivals and um, food laws like Old Testament. So back to Old Testament um, covenant of um, uh, law. So so Muhammad um, asserted that what he was teaching was not. Uh, new faith, but the ancient true faith that had been uh, the faith of Abraham and Ishmael that simply he was reestablishing. That was how he um, conveyed it and, and probably believed that. But again, our accounts of his life come from um, the, the earliest um, uh, biography of him is actually a hundred years after by a great-great-grandson. And um, even that comes secondarily. Others who sort of uh, it was not, there was not just one intact um, text that was preserved of his thing. And then later on, there's all sorts of other details about his life in 
later biographers, and you're like, well, where the heck did they get those, right? How, and so it's, it's very difficult to say what is original, but of course the, the best source is by this one grandson, but, or great-great-grand, great-great-great-grandson. Um, so, we don't have much time here, so... The Quran was dictated, as I say, over a 22-year um, span of his life. It was one man, one language, one place, one time period. No eyewitnesses to confirm the testimony. It was just him and the, the voice of Jibril, right? And so, it, again, if you compare that to the New Testament scriptures and the, the confidence we can have um, in their historicity and in their um, authenticity. Um, So, the 90 surahs that came from the first 13 years in Mecca contained no instructions about fighting, and they tend to urge peaceful coexistence with and tolerance of unbelievers, because at this time they were actually being persecuted themselves. Um, the merchant traders who were dealing in, you know, idolatry and um, who, you know, were not, you know, too warm to the message of you guys are, are pagans and, and idolaters and you better repent or Allah is going to uh, get you. And so they uh, didn't respond too kindly to that. Um, however, the 24 surahs that from the period that followed the move to Medina, when he after he was driven out, where um, they sort of basically um, went into exile, um, they demonstrate an evolution of thought to, through violence in self-defense toward obligatory aggressive jihad against non-Muslims. Mm -hmm. Now the thing is, these things are interspersed within. Uh, what exists in the Quran today, because um, when it was codified by Uthman the Third Caliph, and uh, about just mm, about forty or fifty years after his death, I'm trying to remember what year it is again, and he put it from longest surah to shortest surah. Right, so it's, it's not in any particular order of how they were received or anything. And so they, if you rearrange them into a chronological order you get quite a different picture, but it becomes clear that um, the large part of the surahs that came from earlier on um, didn't have anything about you know, fighting the name of Allah. But the later surahs, once he began to grow in power, because suddenly he just had this explosion of um, power and of, of converts, and they began to um, engage in conquest of the areas around them, and suddenly the tone changes. Um, and there's been a pattern of that happening in, in Islam in terms of the spread of Islam over history. Um, okay, so let's talk about the conquest of Arabia. As he shared his teachings with family and friends, he gradually began to accumulate a band of faithful disciples. Um, but as I say, the merchants of Mecca uh, were not too pleased with him, and his fellow Quraysh tribesmen became increasingly angry because of his condemnation of their idolatry and began to persecute them. They placed a trade embargo on them and ridiculed him in public. Some of the slaves who followed him were beaten and even tortured by their pagan masters. Um, he continued to gain followers, but they, as they became more and more unwelcome, some of the converts fled to nearby cities, and um, he at various times sort of left and came back to Mecca, but ultimately um, had to leave permanently, or not permanently, but... Um, for a, a longer period in 622 um, because the Quraysh 
tribe and commercial traders had had enough of him and actually hatched a plot to secretly murder him um, because they were afraid to openly assassinate him because he did have a significant number of followers by that point. So they relocated to Yathrib, 200 miles north, or now named Medina, the city of the prophet. Um, at the time, it was a mix of Jewish tribes and various Arab clans who made them welcome in exile, some even treating him as a hero. And this Hijira, the great exile and pilgrimage of Muhammad and his followers, became one of the Islamic history's most important events. During this time, he began to dictate plans based on the surahs of the Quran, um, or, or, the, or expressed in the surahs of the Quran, and partly on the restructuring of his followers, the Ummah, into a sort of fighting band. Um, he began a systematic cleansing and conquest of the Hejaz, the, the Arabian Peninsula, including slaughter of the Jews. As I've mentioned, the teaching about outward jihad or fighting in the way of Allah began to develop in those 24 surahs uh, delivered at Medina. Um, I only have a couple more minutes. With Medina as his base, over the next decade, he consolidated his political power and his position as the prophet. Um, in addition to fighting bands of citizens who opposed him, he sent his followers out to raid and raid and pillage the merchant caravans of the pagan Arabs who passed through or near the city. Now, this is this is enshrined in Islamic history. It's not like they're they're um, embarrassed of this because the reality is that wasn't uncommon at the time for someone to do this, like uh, a leader to uh, pillage other groups, other clans, in order to um, promote their own and and provide for their own. Um, in response, the pagans began guarding their caravans with armed soldiers, and eventually full-scale conflicts ensued. Muhammad's major battles figure prominently in the chronic revelations received during these early years. Um, entire, yeah, okay, so three, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, so, as Muhammad's power and influence um, grew, relations with the three Jewish tribes in Medina, who were not interested in converting, began to deteriorate, and he solved it by expelling two of the tribes and um, oh, sorry, that's massacred the remaining tribe. These actions were supported by the teachings that came in the surahs, strangely enough. Um, at this point, his sect was swiftly growing in power and numbers, and he was using that power to conquer an ever wider domain. And I'm just going to finish with... Um, Oh, here. So here is, um, see the little green part there? So that's, that's kind of what was accomplished initially, and it doesn't seem like a whole lot, but um, we'll see that grow. And I think next week I'll probably just have to continue with history because there's a lot left. Um, so let's just consider that, by contrast, Jesus laid his life down willingly for his friends and followers, friends and even his enemies. Uh, the New Testament makes it clear that Covetors, thieves, and murderers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And to purport to do things such as these in God's name or for the sake of expanding his kingdom, of course, is, is damnable. We're called to follow in Jesus' footsteps, to take up our crosses, to patiently endure suffering and persecution at the hands of unbelievers, and to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel, to return good for evil and bless those who persecute us. So just to remind us of, of um, how great the contrast is between what Jesus has called us to and what we have to share with um, those who do not know, yet know that. So I'm going to just leave it there, and um, we'll continue next week. <laughs>
Sorry. <laughs> it's the best I could do to condense it down. Wow. <coughs>